Well, when I was a kid, I basically wore out our family's VHS copy of Disney's Aladdin. I have probably seen that movie a hundred times or more. Uh, One summer, my sisters and I watched that movie every single day of break, which is my my parents will go crazy if they ever hear, you know, uh, Prince Ali or, uh, you know, uh, A Whole New World or whatever ever again. They just go out of their minds because we just sang it again and again and again. But the appeal of that movie, of course, the big appeal is the genie. Right? And not just because of Robin Williams' hilarious, amazing performance there, but also because when you are 11 years old, there is nothing more mind-blowing than the idea of an all-powerful genie granting you three wishes. You cannot watch that movie and not think, okay, what would I do? Okay, I know the rules, no wishing for more wishes and so on. Okay, but what would I use those three strategic requests for? If I had access to the phenomenal cosmic power of the genie, what would I do? Well, I think most of us would probably do what the people in that movie do. They'd wish for wealth or power or to be rescued from a dangerous circumstance or something like that. That's what makes the passage we're going to look at today so interesting to me. Because it's a prayer. It's a prayer where Paul, an early leader in the Jesus movement, is requesting that God use his phenomenal cosmic power to do some things for him. He actually makes three requests of God. And what Paul requests is not the sort of thing that you and I would probably request. It's sort of a surprise. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead uh, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. Uh, Ephesians is a little letter in the New Testament towards the end of the Bible. Uh, It's small, so if you can't find it, it's no shame to look it up in the table of contents. We are going to be at the end of chapter three, and we are wrapping up this week our series that we have called True Self. Uh, We have been talking about how we find our identity. How do we discover who we actually are? And we've been talking about the fact that that when we're saying, who am I, we don't look inward to our desires, to our our feelings to say what we are. We don't look outward to the uh, accomplishments that we have and to the opinions of other people to find out who we are. We actually look upward. And we say, God, who do you say that I am? Because what God says about us actually is the most true thing about us. That is who we really are. And so each week we've been highlighting one thing that God says about who we are if we are in Christ. So if you have surrendered to Christ, here's the thing we're talking about this week. You are empowered. Empowered. Say that with me. Empowered. That's the theme of Paul's prayer here. He is asking for God's power. As I read it to you, what I'd like you to do is actually look for all of the the words and phrases where that idea of power comes up. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and maybe mark that in your Bible or in in your weekly welcome. Uh, But look for all the places where that comes up. We're going to start in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, let me point something out. You know what just happened? God 
just spoke to us. Every time you open up this book, you hear God's voice. The God who made you reveals the deepest truths about reality to you whenever you open up this book. And I think that deserves a big thank you, don't you? Okay, so I wanna hear you say it, all right? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, did you see those references to power? If you missed them, let me point them out to you. Uh, Verse 16, he prays that God would strengthen us with his power. Verse 18, again, his power with all the Lord's holy people. Verse 20, that we're praying to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us. Paul is praying for power. Now, it's important to point out that God is not our genie. Okay? He does not exist to do our bidding. Uh, he does not belong to us. This is not rubbing the lamp and making three wishes. But, but Paul is requesting God to use his phenomenal power. God can say no to our requests. Uh, we, we don't, he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. But when we pray, we are doing something astounding, don't you think? We're saying, God of infinite power, will you do something for me? Will you bring some of that power to bear in my life? Now, most of us, when we pray for God's power, we're usually praying for him to change some external circumstance in our life. Uh, This week, some of the things I've been praying for, uh, a friend who's in the hospital, praying for healing, uh, praying for a former student who who just unexpectedly lost his job and doesn't know what he's gonna do. Uh, I've been praying for uh, some messy situations at work that they would turn out well. And all of these requests, they have to do with the circumstances of life. And it's a good and right thing to pray for those things. But what I find fascinating is that when Paul prays for power, in this prayer and in pretty much every other place we have a prayer of his, he he doesn't pray for circumstances. He he prays for something that transcends circumstances. So what does Paul ask for? He asks for three things. Uh, Let me show them to you. Here's the first one. Look again at verse 16. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now here's the request so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's what Paul is praying for. He is praying for power to be centered. Power to be centered. Any of you ever played the game Encore before? It's a really fun game. Let me explain how it works. Uh, You have two teams, and you draw a random word out of a hat. And what you do is the two teams go back and forth and they have to sing a song that has that word in it. So one team will sing, sing a song and then the next team will sing another song and the next team will sing, sing another song. And, and when the first team to not be able to come up with a song with that word in it loses and the other team gets a point. It's a lot of fun. We play this uh, as a creative arts team and we just love doing it. I'll tell you this, it is really difficult to be a worship pastor at Encore. Uh, Brendan Nelson, our DeKalb uh, worship pastor, uh, I think he knows the words to every song that's been released for the last 30 years. He, it's, he's unbeatable. He's amazing. Um, but we love to play this game. And you know that when you play it, there are going to be some words that you're only going to be able to think of a few songs. It's a rare word. But there are other words where you could just go on all day long. Words like love and baby and time. There's just so many songs to sing. Uh, one word that always gets, uh, it goes on for a long time, is the word heart. We're always singing about our hearts. So if we were playing this game, it might go something like this. You draw the word heart, and then you sing this song. And, and if you know the words, you can sing along. Okay. Good start. Classic. Then someone is going to do this.
comes. Okay. So someone's like, you know what, Adele? Okay, there was Adele before there was Adele. What about Celine? And if you can recover from that, <laughs> we're, we're still in the 90s, so someone's going to do this, right? Quit playing games with my heart. My heart. My heart. You're going to go back and forth for several more rounds, at least, because there's lots of songs. But eventually, someone is going to do this. Don't tell my heart. And at that point, you just have to end the game because it is not going to get better uh, from, from that. Our culture, we refer to our heart a lot. Uh, and this is a, a good thing, but it's also a challenging thing because when you go to the Bible and you see the word heart, and the Bible talks about hearts all the time, it means something slightly different than what we mean when we say the word heart in our culture. In our culture, the, we talk about our heart when we talk about our feelings. Our emotions are what happen in our hearts. So if you pour out your heart to somebody, what you're really saying is, I'm going to be really honest with my emotions, my feelings. If you follow your heart, you're, you're saying, I'm going to do what feels right even if it's not logical. We, we contrast our head and our heart. You think with your head, you feel with your heart. So in our culture, that's what the heart means. But in biblical cultures, the heart had a much bigger sense of meaning than that. The, the heart represented the core of your life, everything that happened at the, the center of yourself. It, it was the place where you thought, uh, your, your thinking, your logic, your reasoning happened there. Uh, we, we tend to uh, say that our, our brains are where that's happened, but in the ancient times, they, they didn't know what the brain was for, and so they said, well, maybe it happens in your heart. The, your heart is your place of desire. It's where you want things, you seek things, you, you, you run after things with your heart. Your, your heart is the place you make decisions. It's your will. You choose things with your heart. Your, your heart is the command center. It's the situation room. It's the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Sorry, I just had to do that. <laughs> an image that helps me get the idea of heart in the Bible is to simply imagine an arrow sticking out of your chest. Your, your heart is that arrow. It's what directs it so that your thoughts go that direction. Your, your desires go that direction. Your decisions go that direction. It, it aims all of the faculties of your life towards something. So it's more than just what you feel. It is the center, the core of your life. Uh, as a little aside, do, do you know what organ they used in biblical times to refer to where you felt strong emotion? Your intestines. And it makes almost more sense than your heart, right? Like, where do you feel strong stuff? In your guts, right? There are actually verses in the Bible that in the original language say, when it's talking about Jesus feeling compassion, it says things like, Jesus' bowels moved. And for some reason, translators thought that would be confusing. I don't know. <laughs> There is a, another tricky thing about this verse when we talk about Christ dwelling in your heart. There is a popular phrase if you've been around church world in America that you've probably heard. Lots of people say it, but curiously, it is not in the Bible. It is the phrase, I asked Jesus into my heart. Now, when people say that, they are referring to one of the most important moments in their life. They're talking about the moment when they surrendered their lives to Jesus. They put their trust in him as their savior, as their king, the one who died for their sins, who rose to give them new life. It's a huge, huge moment in your life when you surrender to him. 
And the Bible talks a lot about that, but it never uses the phrase asking Jesus into your heart. Uh, around Christ's community, uh, we try to avoid using that phrase when we talk about that moment of surrender. Uh, we'll use phrases like coming to faith. We'll, we'll often use the word surrender. We'll talk about becoming a disciple of Jesus. And these are more biblical descriptions of that event. The only time in the Bible where something close to that phrase comes up is actually in this passage. Uh, but it doesn't say asking into your heart. It says that Christ would dwell in your heart. Now, it's not referring here to the moment when you come to faith in Jesus. And here's how I know that. Because Paul is writing to people who are already Christ followers. They're people who have already done that, maybe years earlier. And so what is he talking about here? If he's not talking about that moment of initial surrender, what does he mean by Christ coming to dwell in our hearts? This is what he means. He is praying that Christ would be at the center of their being. He would be the central focus of their life. He is saying that Jesus should be the focus of their hearts, their thinking and their desires and their decision-making. He should be the one that the arrow points at all the time. He should be in the captain's chair. He is the sun around which your life revolves. Your life is centered on Jesus. Now, some people hear that and they say, that, that sounds a little problematic. That's kind of, that sounds a little crazy, maybe a little fanatical. A lot of people have that problem with religious people. They, they look at religious people and say, that's, that's when things get kind of annoying, right? Like, it's okay if someone wants a little Jesus on the side, right? You know, like, it's, it's kind of like a, a hobby in your life, something you, you do Whole30, you do yoga, you do journaling or whatever, and it kind of it makes you feel better about yourself, gives you, gives you some inspiration, you feel healthy, you, you know, a little direction, a little morality, something. That, that's a good thing. Like, if you want religion for that, that's great. But when it gets at the, the center of your life and you're obsessed with that, like that's where things get troubling. People like that are annoying, you know what I mean? Or, or, or dangerous. Those are the sort of people who look down on people who believe differently than them. You get judgmental. You're shaming others for, for not thinking what you think. And, and it can get even worse. Sometimes people get violence to fanatics. They do all sorts of crazy things in the name of religion. How many wars have been fought because of that? And so the last thing we need is more people who are obsessed, centered on their God. And I get why someone would say that. But, but I'd offer a few thoughts about that. The first is this. Every one of us has something, something that is going to be the center of our lives. It's not that you say, well, I've got a lot of things in my life, but there is no center. There is gonna be something that that arrow of your heart points to. And for most of us, where that naturally goes to is our personal achievements or keeping other people happy or making money or being in control of the situation, or, or numbing the pain of life. We're, we're, we're aiming that. That's what our lives center on. It's the thing that directs our thoughts and our desires and our decisions. And if we're honest, those are the things that really screw up our lives, aren't they? Like when we're focused on those things, when we make decisions because of those things, we mess things up, our relationship and our world. And I can tell you this, personally, I, I know that when Christ is at the center of my life, that actually makes me a better person. Think about it. Jesus is someone who lived with gratitude and generosity every moment of his life. He lived a life where he sacrificed and he served people, even people who hated him. Jesus is the sort of person who used his power and his privilege to help people in desperate situations. If you're obsessed with someone like that, don't you think you're going to become like that? You're going to start doing that for people, even people who disagree with you? It's when Jesus is not the center of my life that I become a judgmental jerk. Most people who want just a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of religion in their life, those are the people who are dangerous. Not the people who are focused and fixated on it because a little religion, you know what it does? It makes you feel better than other people. 
Makes you feel like, hey, I've done something good, something a little bit more than the other person. And that's when you look down on people. It's when you take Jesus and put him at the core that you become a, a gracious and humble and open-handed person just like him. That, that's why I would want to challenge all of us here who would say, I'm a Christ follower. I, I do love Jesus. And, and ask yourself, honestly, is Christ dwelling at the center of your life right now? And if your life isn't centered on him, what, what's taken his place? Give an honest assessment and ask God to give you power to be centered. Let's look at the second thing that Paul prays for. Uh, look at the end of verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Here Paul is praying for the power to be rooted, the power to be rooted. Specifically, he wants us to be rooted in God's love. I wonder if you describe your life as rooted. When I drive in the car, uh, what I always have the same posture. I have one hand on the wheel and the other hand on the radio. And I'm always just clicking through the stations, clicking through the stations. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking for a great song. Like, what do, I, what do I feel like listening to right now? And I'll often listen to like five seconds, five seconds, and just keep clicking to the, till I find something really good. When I'm at home, it's even worse because Spotify basically makes the options unlimited. And so I'm always, I find myself listening to 15 seconds, 30 seconds of a song, and then switching to look for something else. And it's not because I'm not enjoying the song. I might actually like the song, but I'm thinking, you know, there's something just a little bit better. There's something else out there. I, you know, I don't even know what I'm looking for, but I feel restless. And so I think, well, maybe the next one will be it. Maybe the next one will be it. Don't I, my heart, my just don't think thanks, guys. Thanks. You feel like that perfect song is out there. And I, I don't know if you do this, but I feel like it's a perfect metaphor for our lives, for, for the way we live, what's going on in our hearts. We're searching for something. We're looking for something that's going to make us feel satisfied, but we're restless. We don't even know what we're looking for, but we know that what's in front of us is not it. So what do we do when we feel that restlessness? We upgrade our phone. We get a new haircut. We remodel our house. If you live an exciting life like mine, you redo your personal organization system because some of you know, some of you are that sort of person. <laughs> you, you might go looking to see what other jobs are out there, you know, pre preferably in a warmer climate. Uh, you fantasize. About what would it be like to be in a, a relationship with that person? And even when it's not a sinful act, some of these things are, are symptoms of underlying restlessness in our lives. They're the side effects of hearts that are not rooted in anything big enough. That's what our hearts are doing. They're always trying to put down roots into something, something that's going to be big enough, something that's going to be life-giving enough to actually fulfill our desires, to actually satisfy. And since we don't find it, we just keep trying other things. Paul says that what we're looking for, what our hearts are designed to be rooted in, is the love of God. I love the metaphors he uses in verse 17, rooted and established. It rooted, it's a, an image from the natural world, like a tree. Uh, the roots of our lives are meant to dig down deep into the love of God, into the soil of his love, and to draw life and nourishment. It established. It's an image from the architectural world. God's love is a solid, firm foundation that when our lives are built on, on it, it keeps us from being shaken. That we might still be hit by the, the blows and the collisions of life, but being firmly fixed in something bigger makes it so that there's something that can absorb the impact. We are, we are firmly established in God's love. 
rooted and established. How different would your life feel? How much more secure would you feel if you actually experienced that sense of rootedness and being established in God's love? Imagine the difference it would make for the, the rising star athlete who's so anxious about disappointing their coach or their parents to know that you are rooted in God's love. Or to the stay-at-home mom who feels like she's second class because she didn't pursue her career. Or to the working mom who feels like she's a failure because she can't keep up with both her home life and her, her professional life. To know that you are actually rooted and secure in the love of God. For the person who, who's looking back kind of at the end of their life and they're, they're realizing their life didn't go the way they expected. It didn't happen how they imagined it would and they've got regrets. To know that you are rooted, established in the love of God. How amazing would that be? But, but is it really that simple? I mean, I think if I took a poll in here, almost every person here would say, yeah, I believe that God loves me. Even if you're not sure if you believe in God, you'd say, if I did believe in God, I'm pretty sure I think he would love me. Like that's sort of God's job, right? But I'm guessing if I, I pulled you aside and I, I asked you honestly, how, how do you feel in life? You'd say, I still feel that restlessness. I still feel insecure. What good is it to believe that God actually loves me? Remember who Paul is writing to here. It's a group of Christ followers. I bet you if you asked them, they would say the same thing. Uh, we, we know that God loves us. We know that God loves us. But Paul is still praying that God would have, bring power into their life so that they would know something they already know. He, he, Paul recognizes that to really know the love of God requires God's miraculous power. Look, look at verse 19. Paul prays that they would know this love that surpasses knowledge. You read that and you say, that doesn't make any sense. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? That's, that's not logical. Unless he's talking about two different kinds of knowledge. There are a few reasons why I will probably never leave the Chicagoland area. Some of them have to do with things like family and friends and church and, and so on. But there are two real reasons that are at the top of the list. Italian beef and deep dish pizza, okay? But they got me here, okay? I have a friend who grew up in Texas. And his entire childhood, he never had either of those things. Texas is a rough place, guys. <laughs> Until he moved up here uh, for college. And, and before then, he probably could have told you uh, an accurate description of Chicago-style pizza. He could have described how thick it was. And he could have described you know, the mounds of cheese on it and the, the, the uh, you know, chunky tomato sauce that's on it. And he could have described, he probably even could have told you, yeah, I think it probably tastes good. He might have even been able to verbally say, I think it probably tastes like this. But until that day, freshman year, when he goes out to Gino's East, he takes that first bite and his life was changed forever. <laughs> he didn't really know, did he? You, you can know something, but there is another kind of knowledge that goes deeper than that. There's a knowledge you cannot simply convey with words. It's something you have to, to taste. You can be told it, but you have to taste it to really know it. That, that's the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying for here, that we would taste the love of God. And to do that, you need God's power. It's a miracle that happens in your heart. Part of the reason experiencing God's love requires God's power is because of how big God's love is. Look at verse 18. It talks about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. God's love is too big to get our heads around. It is wider than any love you've ever known. It extends to all people everywhere, no matter who they are. 
It is longer than any love you've ever known because it offers forgiveness for anything, anything that you have done. There is nothing that is too far for you to come back to. God offers freedom and forgiveness for that. It is higher than any love you've ever known because it originates in the courts of heaven and began before the foundation of the world. It is deeper than any love you have ever known because it's a love that would chase you to death and back in order to rescue you. We will never, ever exhaust the love of God. For all of eternity, we will continue to discover new marvels of God's love. It is so big, it requires a miracle to grasp it. And it's not just that God's love is big. There's another problem too. We cannot grasp God's love because of something that's wrong with us. I'd like to share with you my favorite study Bible in the world. It's this. The Jesus Storybook Bible, yes, it's for children, but it's also for adults. I highly recommend it. It's a great book because it takes all of the individual stories of the Bible and connects them to the big story of what God is doing in Jesus. Helps make a lot of sense out of things. What I'd like to do is read to you a portion of uh, the story of how sin came into the world. So get cozy, children. Let me read to you. Adam and Eve live happily together in their beautiful new home. And everything was perfect for a while until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He he wanted to stop God's plan, stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think that you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think that they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew that there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked up the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. Does that ring true for you? It does for me. I know that in my own heart, that that question, that lie lives on. The the fear that maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe I am not loved. Maybe I'm not even lovable. That even when I'm not consciously thinking about that, that, that lie stands behind so much of my behavior. And I see it in the behavior of other people too. This is the sad and terrible reality of our sin. 
The, the lie that God does not love us is both the cause and the effect of our sin. And the longer that sin remains in the world, the further the lie spreads and the deeper it goes. This is made all the more difficult by the fact that our instincts are shaped by a world where sincere love is scarce and unending love is unknown. And it's hard for us to imagine what the infinite love of God might be like. There's an author, Eugene Peterson, and he tells a story a story about a friend of his who adopted a five-year-old girl, a girl named Addie. Uh, Addie came from a part of the world where food was scarce, there were, there were famines, and so uh, they, they struggled to find food day, day by day. And when they first welcomed Addie into their home, they had this big meal. They, they had pork chops and they had, uh, they had mashed potatoes and they had all these side dishes. And that family had a couple of teenage boys and teenage boys, as they typically do, uh, they just started, you know, heaping food on their plates and they ate it fast and they ate a lot of it. And they just kept taking seconds and thirds. And they finally got to the end of the meal and they took the last scoop of potatoes and put it on their plate and they finished it off. And when that happened, Addie got still and quiet. And you can imagine why, can't you? You grew up hungry like her. You, th you think, okay, when this food is gone, that's all the food we've got. That's all the food there is. We, we don't know. It might be several days before we figure out what we're going to eat next. And so she was agitated. She was afraid. And when Addie's mother saw what was going on, this is what she did. Eugene Peterson describes it like this. She took Addie's hand and led her to the bread drawer and pulled it out and showed her a backup of three loaves. She took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice, the fresh vegetables, the jars of jelly and jam, the peanut butter, the cartons of eggs, a package of bacon. She took her to the pantry with its bins of potatoes and onions and squash, the, the shelves of canned goods, the tomatoes and peaches and pickles. She opened the freezer and showed Addie three or four chickens, a few packages of fish, two cartons of ice cream. And all the time, she reassured Addie that there was lots of food in the house and that no matter how much her brothers ate or how fast they ate it, there was a lot more where that came from. She would never go hungry again. You and I are starved for love, that we have survived on the scraps of affection. We have collected what we could from here and there. And occasionally we've had decent meals, but we wonder, how long is this really gonna last? That we wonder if there's going to be enough. We, we wonder, we're always not sure if there's going to be another meal of affection tomorrow. We, we can't imagine what it would be like to not worry if we're going to be loved or welcomed or accepted. I think in every social situation, it's in the back of our minds. And whenever it looks like our, our sources of affirmation or our security are going to be taken away, we go into a panic. We, we get frantic. We're looking for something that's going to make us feel secure. And it's at that point when Jesus comes along and he says, let me take you by the hand and show you just how big my love actually is. This is what Holy Week is all about, isn't it? That Jesus takes us and he, he, he shows us, he says, let me take you to Jerusalem where I came in. And I knew what they would do with me, but I, I, I did it because I love you. And he takes us to his final meal. And we see how he stooped down and he washed the feet of his disciples, even the feet of the one who would betray him. And we see the bread and the cup that were broken and poured out. And he takes us to the garden where he wept and he prayed and he bore the burden of our grief. And then he takes us to the trial. And we hear the accusations of things that he didn't do. 
Crimes he didn't commit, but things we have done. And then he leads us up the hill. And he shows us the place where they tortured him. And they hung him on a cross. And we hear the insults and we see him spit in the face. And we see the nails and the crown of thorns. And we say, why? It's because he loves us. He lets us hear the words that he spoke on the cross. As they were doing this to him, he, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And he said, it is finished. I've done it all for them. He takes us to the tomb where his body lay. And then on Easter Sunday, he shows us the stone rolled back and the grave empty and death defeated and life offered to all of us. Those of us who do not deserve it, but he loves us so much, he said, I'm gonna bring it to you. It's a reminder of how big and how powerful the love of God is. He points to this and he says, this is what proves that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, not the present, not the future, no powers, no height or depth or anything in all of creation can separate you from my love. You will never go hungry again. That we need constant reminders of God's love because it is so big and we are so forgetful. You know, the best thing you can do to be reminded of God's, reg God's love regularly is to be around people you know are gonna do that for you. It, it's interesting. Look at verse 18. Paul prays that together with all of God's holy people, we would have power to grasp the love of Christ. Together with all of God's holy people. He's referring to other Christ followers. He's referring to the church community because we cannot grasp God's love on our own. We cannot do it by ourselves. We need each other for this. This is why the best way to stay rooted in the love of God is to stay rooted in the people of God. This is actually the reason we're always talking about being in weekend services and going to community groups. It's not just because we're thinking, oh, we, we need more people in these programs. No, we think this is a matter of spiritual life and death. We actually believe that this kind of community is essential. That weekly worship, regular close community, this is how we stay rooted in the love of God. Without other people around us, we don't have the power to do that. So, so here's a question I have for you, because I know that many of you are engaged in community in, in significant ways. What are you doing to help the people around you Stay rooted in God's love. Are you thinking about that? Like when you, you go to your community group, you show up, maybe you're not the leader of the community group, but you're there. Are you asking the question, okay, what can I do actively to encourage the people around me, to remind them of God's love, to keep them focused on Christ and who he is and what he's done? When you're here on the weekend, are, are you thinking, you know what, how am I gonna welcome someone in a way that makes them feel welcomed by Jesus? How am I gonna get into a conversation with someone to actually find out how they're doing? To actually spend a little bit of extra time to, to, to encourage that person, to, to pray for that person, to be with that person. When you go home, when you're with your, your roommates, are you thinking, hey, what am I going to do to point them towards Christ? Or, or when you're with your children, or, or you're with your parents, you ever think about that? You might be a, a kid, but are you doing things to say, mom, dad, I, I want to encourage you to stay rooted in the love of Christ? Do you do that with your brothers and sisters? Do you do that with your spouse? Are you looking out? We, we've got to have each other's backs. We, we cannot do this on our own. We will forget about the love of Christ. This is how we stay rooted in him. There's one more thing that Paul prays for. It's at the end of verse 19 where he prays this, for power that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness 
of God. He prays for power to be filled. Power to be filled. What does that mean? One of the mistakes that people sometimes make when we talk about the love of God is thinking that, that God's love doesn't require any of us, anything from us, that, that we don't have to change. God loves us right where we are. And so some people jump from that true thing that God accepts me right where I'm at to an untrue thing that God is happy with right where I'm at. The first half of that is right. God's love is a gift. You don't have to earn it with your good works. You, don't, you can't lose it from your bad behavior. He loves you and that is free. But God's love is too powerful to leave us right where we are. It's an accepting love, but it's also a transforming love. It's not that God's saying, you know, okay, I did something for you. I, I forgave your sins. Now you do something for me. You clean up your act. That's not what he's doing. He, he's saying, no, I've done something for you. I've forgiven you. I've freed you. And I want to keep doing something for you. Because the very best thing that God could do for us is to go into all those bent and broken and sinful places in our lives and actually heal them and put them back together and make us the people he, made, he wants us to be. That when, when Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God, he, he's not talking about some vague mystical experience. He's talking about the concrete reality of your life. He is praying that every area of your life would be filled with the presence of God in a way that changes it. Because that's what we need. We, we live really compartmentalized lives, don't we? We're kind of the, the TV dinner tray. We've got all these little compartments where, and none of the things ever touch. We, we've got our, our, our work life and our school life and our social life and our leisure time and our, our, our money and our sex life and our physical health. And, and then over here, we've got our spiritual life. And God's kind of in that component, but he doesn't really touch all the other things too directly. But God's, this prayer is that God would fill every area of life. So for the next couple of days, think through this. Ask yourself, in, in different situations, okay, in this situation, what would change if the fullness of God's presence were here? Are there things that I'm doing that I would stop doing? Are there things that I'm not doing I would start doing? How would it change my perspective on the difficulty of this situation? How would it change how I acted uh, towards the success I'm experiencing now? How would it change my work? How would it change this relationship? What would I do differently if the presence of God filled this place? If he had something to say about this? See, God isn't content to enter one part of our life and leave the rest unchanged. God does not want you to have a spiritual life. He wants your life to be spiritual. He wants total transformation of every aspect of your existence. He wants you to be filled with all the fullness of God. How different would life be if we had power for these three things? To be centered on Christ, to be rooted in his love. If every area of our life was filled with the influence of God, how different would we be? How different would this community be? How different would the, the world around us be if that was true of us? I think if that were happening, that that would be the sort of life that would glorify God. It would make him look amazing, which is why Paul ends his prayer with this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what we want to see, isn't it? We want to see God do far more than we ask or imagine, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. And as we close, I want to apply that to what's going on this week. This is the biggest week of the year for us as a church. 
Uh, this weekend, up, this upcoming weekend, for the Easter celebrations, we are going to have more people here than we do at any other time of the year. Uh, this is the biggest celebration. We are celebrating the most important events that have ever happened, and we are sharing the best news that anybody could ever hear. And we want to see God do something powerful and big beyond what we can ask or imagine, don't you? It could be so exciting. We're going to have hundreds of people here who need to hear the good news of Jesus and God could radically transform their life if they're here and they're open to that. That's what we want to see. So this is, our, this is the challenge for us as a church. We should be praying for that, just like Paul prays for God's power. And we want to pray that people who come in here experiencing the transforming love of Christ when they do. So this is what we're going to ask everybody to do. Uh, to take one meal this week, to actually skip that meal, to actually fast, and to say, during that meal, I'm going to pray for this upcoming weekend, for the, the visitors who are coming, for the things that we've planned, for the, the message of the gospel, that that would make an impact. And, and as we do that, actually, uh, we've got some uh, prayer requests for you. We've got uh, sheets that we've uh, prepared on your way out of each of our auditoriums. On your way out, you can grab one of those, and you just pick a, a breakfast or a lunch where you say, this is when I'm going to pray for God's power to show up as we declare the message of God's incredible love and what he's done in Jesus. So I'd encourage you to do that this week, and also be inviting people. This is going to be amazing. Well, as we finish out our service, here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond to God's love by singing a song to him. It's a brand new song uh, that we haven't sung before. I think you'll understand why we sing it. It's about the amazing, incredible love of God. And as we do that, we're also going to respond to God's love by offering our gifts and our offerings to thank him uh, and to uh, offer our praise back to him for giving us so much. So let's pray. God, this is what we want. We want power that in every circumstance, no matter what's going on, that we would be people who are centered on you and rooted deeply in your love and filled with the fullness of your presence in every area of our life. We know we cannot do that without the power of your spirit working in us. And so that's what we pray for this week. In Jesus' name, amen.